We're going to start in Matthew chapter 9. And the title of my sermon today is, What Did Jesus See? What did Jesus see? Matthew 9, in verse 35, says, Then Jesus went about all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every sickness and every disease among the people. But when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion for them, because they were weary and scattered like sheep having no shepherd. I'm reading the New King James, by the way, just FYI. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest truly is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Here it says that Jesus, in verse 36, saw the multitudes, and he had a response to the multitudes. It says he had compassion on them. Uh, But his response, his compassion, was conditioned on what he saw. This is a very important principle. And it applies all throughout Scripture to many aspects of our life. But today we're going to look at it in terms of what did Jesus see when he saw people who were lost? What did he see? And we can contrast Jesus' vision to the Pharisees. Then we can contrast Jesus' vision to the disciples and what they saw. And then lastly, we can contrast what Jesus saw or sees to what we see. So first, let's talk a little bit about Jesus and the Pharisees. Now, it's really interesting when you read the entire chapter of Matthew 9, and I almost did, but uh, there's other scriptures I want to read, so we, for the sake of time, I'm not. But you see a series of incidents where it's clear that Jesus was seeing something different than what the Pharisees saw. Okay, notice in the early part of, of chapter 9, this is where they bring the paralytic man down, right? They bring him down, and uh, it says in, in verse 3, and at once some of the scribes said to themselves, uh, this man blasphemes, because Jesus said, son, your sins are forgiven. <clears throat> but Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, why do you think evil in your hearts? For what's easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, arise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. Then he said to the paralytic, Arise, take up your bed, and go to your house. And he arose and departed to his house. And people marveled. So the, the Pharisees are looking at the situation with a particular view to seeing how Jesus would offend, how Jesus would sin. What's Jesus looking at in this situation? Yeah, the need of the man. The Pharisees weren't looking at the need of the paralytic. They were looking at an opportunity to criticize Jesus. Jesus is looking at the need of the paralytic. Let me go on. Verse 9, And Jesus passed on from there, and he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax office, and he said to him, Follow me. So he arose and followed him. Now what happened is Jesus sat at the table in the house, that behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and sat down with him and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw it, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? So what are they looking at? When they see the lost, they see guilty people. They see unclean people, right? 
when Jesus heard that, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, or it could be translated compassion, which comes up later in, in, in our chapter, and not sacrifice. For I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners, in my version says, but sinners to repentance. So then uh, we go on again. And in verse 27, it says, And when Jesus departed from there, two blind men followed him, crying out, saying, Son of David, have mercy on us. But when he had come into the house, the blind men came to him, and Jesus said to them, Do you believe that I am able to do this? And they said, Yes, Lord. So then he touched their eyes, uh, uh, saying, According to your faith, let it be to you. And their eyes were open, and Jesus sternly warned them, saying, See that no one knows, knows of it. But when they departed, they spread the news about him in all that country. And as they went out, behold, they brought to him a man uh, moot and demon-possessed. And when the demon was cast out, the moot spoke. And the multitude marveled, saying, It was never seen like this in Israel. But what did the Pharisees say? He casts out demons by the ruler of demons. So instead of seeing the glory of God, instead of seeing, seeing the, the, the blessing that came to those who were sick and, and, and diseased, they saw uh, Jesus as a, a lawbreaker. They saw Jesus as an offender. They saw the sinners, if you will. And this is really highlighted in Luke 7. Let's turn there, if you, if you will, where there's an account of Jesus eating with a prostitute. And here in Luke 7, starting in verse 36, do you mind if we read the Bible? Then one of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him. This is Luke 7, 36. And he went to the Pharisee's house and he sat down to eat. And behold, I love that word, behold. Now, if you're not reading the New King James, I don't, know, I don't know what yours says. Like, hey, dude, pay attention. I don't know. I love that word, behold, because it's like, pay attention. This is important. Behold. A woman in the city who was a sinner. She was a sinner. When she knew that Jesus sat at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of fragrant oil and stood at his feet behind him weeping. And she began to wash his feet with her tears and wipe them with the hair of her head. And she kissed his feet and anointed them with the fragrant oil. Now, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, okay, he saw He spoke to himself saying, this man, if he were a prophet, would know who and what manner of woman this is who is touching him. For she is a sinner. That's what he saw. He just saw the sinner. Jesus, of course, knowing the hearts of men. It says in verse 40, and Jesus answered and said to him, Simon. Now it's interesting because Jesus answered, but nobody asked the question. Why? Because he's answering the thoughts of their hearts, right? He's answering what's going on inside. Simon, I have something to say to you. So he said, teacher, say it. There was a certain creditor who had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii or denarii or whatever, and the other 50. And when they had nothing with which to repay, he freely forgave them both. Tell me, therefore, which of them will love him more? Simon answered said, I suppose the one whom he forgave more. And he said, you have rightly judged. Then he turned to the woman and he said, Simon, do you see this woman? 
Well, obviously he saw the woman. Jesus knew he saw the woman. But when he saw the woman, he didn't see the woman. That was the problem. He just saw the sinner. He saw the guilt. He saw all the reasons not to associate with this sinner. So Jesus says, do you see this woman? Implying you don't see this woman. Meaning you don't see this woman the way I see this woman. So look at the woman. I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet. But she's washed my feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head. You gave me no kiss. But this woman has not ceased to kiss my feet since I came in. You did not anoint my head with oil. But this woman has anointed my feet with fragrant oil. Therefore I say to you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much. But to whom little is forgiven, the same loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. And they who sat at the table with them began to say to themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? Then he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. All throughout the Gospels, you see this constant contrast between what Jesus saw and what the Pharisees saw. And they continually saw the wrong thing. They saw, yes, that people were sinners, but they saw it from the perspective of they were not, they were superior, they were better, and sinners were people to be avoided, not people that needed ministry. What about the disciples? Are they any better? Well, let's look at a few scriptures. Go back to Matthew in chapter uh, 14. We will come back to our original text, trust me. So Matthew 14, we have one of the accounts of Jesus feeding the multitude. And it says in Matthew 14, in verse 13, it says, uh, When he heard it, he departed from there by boat to a deserted place by himself. And when the multitude heard of it, they followed him on foot from the cities. And when Jesus went out, he saw a great multitude, and he was moved with compassion for them and healed their sick. Notice that phrase again, identical phrase to what we see in Matthew 9. He was moved with compassion for them. When it was evening, his disciples came to him saying, This is a deserted place, and the hour is already late. Send the multitudes away that they may go into the villages and buy themselves food. And Jesus said to them, they do not need to go away. You need to give them something to eat. Notice the contrast in perspective. When, when, when Jesus saw the multitudes, he saw their need and he saw an opportunity for ministry. And it's clear in this text that he wanted to be alone and he was probably tired and didn't want to be hassled with the crowd. Yet he ministered because he saw their need. And what did the, the disciples see? They see a headache. They see a hassle. They see work. They're like, okay, I've got a solution. Get rid of them. That'll fix the problem. Let's just get rid of them. Right? So they're pushing, pushing the people off, pushing the people away. And Jesus is reaching out to the people while his own disciples wanted to push them away. And they say, they come up with their reasons, we don't have enough bread, we don't have enough food, da 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 And of course, we know the rest of the story. Jesus works a miracle, and he feeds them. And he has the, what's really one of the cool things about the story is that Jesus not only 
reproduces the bread and the fish, but he gives it to his disciples and he makes them serve the people. The very people that they wanted to send away. Let's look at... um, Let's look at... uh, Mark 8. And this has to do with another feeding of the multitudes. In Mark 8, in verse 1, it says, In those days, the multitudes being very great and having nothing to eat, Jesus called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the multitude, because they have now continued with me three days and have nothing to eat. If I send them away hungry to their own houses, they will faint on the way, for some of them have come from afar. So Jesus, again, he sees the multitude. Again, we have this phrase, when he sees the multitude, he has compassion. Because when he sees them, he's seeing. What is he seeing? He's seeing their need. He's seeing their need. He's seeing their brokenness. He's seeing their lostness, right? Like, like sheep without a shepherd, just, just wondering, confused, weary. So he sees their need. Well, we know the story. He feeds them. But this account... We have immediately afterwards, they get in a boat. Okay? Now notice this. Um, in verse 10, it says, Immediately they got into the boat with his disciples and came to the region of Dal- Dalmanutha. Then the Pharisees came out and began to, dis- to dispute with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven, testing him. But he sighed deeply in his spirit. He said, Why does this generation seek a sign? Assuredly, I say to you, no sign shall be given to this generation. And he left them, and getting into the boat again, departed to the other side. Now the disciples had forgotten to take bread. So here they just fed the multitude, all, had all kinds of extra bread, and they forgot to bring bread. <clears throat> and they did not have more than one loaf with them in the boat. Then Jesus charged them, saying, Take heed and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they reasoned among themselves, saying, It's because we have no bread. Clearly not seeing what Jesus is seeing, right? They're just not on the same page with Jesus. But Jesus, being aware of it, said to them, Why do you reason because you have no bread? Do you not perceive nor understand? Is your heart still hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? Having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of fragments did you take up? And they said 12. And when I broke the seven for the 4,000, how many large baskets full of fragments did you take up? And they said seven. So he said to them, how is it you do not understand? So we're seeing Jesus saying, hey guys, you've seen this miracle, you've seen this miracle, you've seen this miracle, you still don't get it? You're not seeing what I'm seeing. And it's striking that immediately after this, we have a story of Jesus healing a blind man. And that's not coincidental. It's put there on purpose. Because Jesus is saying to them, you're blind. You're not seeing what I'm seeing. And the problem was their heart. Now, one more, one more passage, if that's okay. Let's go to John 9. In, the, in this passage, we see both, or we see Jesus' perspective, we see the Pharisees' perspective, and we see the disciples' perspective all in one story. John 9. Now this is the story of the man born blind that was healed. And I don't think we'll read it all because it's very long. But we'll read parts of it. 
Now, as Jesus passed by, he saw a man who was blind from birth. Now, the text doesn't tell us right there what he thought when he saw. He just he saw a man. Okay, so Jesus and his disciples are walking. He sees. And his disciples asked him, saying, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he might be born blind? So this shows where they're coming from, right? This, this reveals their theology, or part of their theology, that clearly there's a sin problem, either with this person or his parents, or he would not have been born blind. Well, they had a, they had a skewed theology. Jesus answered, neither this man nor his parents sinned. Not that they were sinless. He's saying their sin isn't why this man's blind. But that the works of God should be revealed in him. I must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. The night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. And then he healed the man. So here again, the disciples see a man who uh, is blind. They want to have a theological discussion. What does Jesus want to do? He wants to heal him. Yeah. So uh, while they want to talk theology, Jesus is like, you know what, guys? This guy needs to be healed. You're not seeing what I'm seeing. Well, as the story goes on, this man gets healed, and then he goes to synagogue, and he gives Jesus the glory, and the Pharisees freak out, right? And this long interview, which we don't have time to read, between the Pharisees and the man who was healed. And we'll just read a few verses. So they, they bring the, the, the parents into this guy, and this became a big deal. Verse 24, so after talking to the man, then after talking to his parents, it says, uh, it says in verse 24, so they again called the man who was blind and said to him, <clears throat> give God the glory. We know this man is a sinner. They're saying this about Jesus. We know Jesus is a sinner. I love, I just, don't you just love the, the blindness of the hypocrite? I mean, I mean, really, we know Jesus is a sinner. He answered and said, whether he is a sinner or not, I don't know. One thing I know, that though I was blind, now I see. I don't have all the answers. I don't know about the theology of this stuff. I don't know if God can use somebody that you think is a sinner, but I know this. He healed me. I was blind, now I see. That's what I know. That's my testimony. Then they said to him again, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? Here we go again. They want to start the whole conversation over. They're looking for things they can pick at, things they can criticize, things they can judge. They want to find fault with Jesus. Uh, and he said, I already told you, but you don't listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? I love that. Sarcasm, right? Sarcasm. Of course, he knows they don't want to be his disciples. So what do they do? They revile him. You are his disciple, but we are Moses' disciples. We know that God spoke to Moses. As for this fellow, we do not know where he is from. And the man answered and said to them, Why, this is a marvelous thing, that you do not know where he's from, yet he's opened my eyes. I mean, here's a guy, probably unlettered, untrained, been blind his whole life, right? Schooling the Pharisees. I mean, just schooling them 
in theology, basically. Right? It's astounding. He said in in, in, uh, verse 31, Now we know that God does not hear sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, he hears him. Since the world began, it has been unheard of that anyone uh, opened the eyes of one who was born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. And they answered and said to him, You were completely born in sins, and you are teaching us, and they cast him out. That's, that, that's the end of the argument. You're a wretch, you're vile, you're out of here. In other words, they didn't, an- they, they didn't really answer the argument. They failed to deal with the argument, and so what did they do? They resort to personal attacks. And that's, that's what people do, right? They don't want to discuss the argument. They want to attack you because they don't have an answer for the argument. And I love this. It says, Jesus heard that he had been cast out, and he went and he found him. Man, what a, what a sweet Jesus. Jesus had a lot to do, but he heard, and he went back and found this guy. Um, so, in this account, the disciples and the Pharisees actually had something in common. They both were tying this man's malady to the sin of either him or his parents. Now, theoretically, you can say, well, all sickness is a result of sin. Yes, theoretically. But that's not what they were saying. They were saying this man's sin or his parents' sin have a direct link. In other words, so, so do you realize that, how, how damning that theology is? That means when you see somebody who's ill or somebody who's in need, you should not help them. Because they're receiving their just due from God. It's like karma. So this justified the hard-heartedness of the Pharisees that you see all throughout Scripture. Here's Jesus is healing people, and they're saying, Oh, you're breaking the Sabbath. They're just completely blind to what God was doing right in front of them. I'm astounding. Now, I shouldn't be too hard on them, and I shouldn't be too hard on the disciples, because we can be blind also. So the question is, what about us? <clears throat> Let's go back to our original text, and then uh, we'll look at... I want to read it again. In Matthew 9. <clears throat> In verse 36, it says, But when he, meaning Jesus saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion. Why? What did he see? Because they were weary and scattered like sheep, having no shepherd. So when Jesus saw the multitudes, he saw their need. He saw their lostness. And really, they saw their need for him. I mean, really, that's what he saw. He knew they needed a shepherd, and he was the great shepherd. Amen? Question is, when we look at the multitudes, what do we see? That's the question. What do we see? Do we just see their sin? Do we just see their unworthiness? Do we see their uh, repulsive behavior? Do we see their... What what do we see? Well, we ought to see as Jesus sees. Right? I want to read a quote by J.C. Ryle, the great Anglican. He says, Let us mark in the next place, meaning going through this passage, our Lord's tender concern for neglected souls. 
He saw the multitudes of people when he was on earth and scattered about like sheep having no shepherd. And he was moved with compassion. He saw them neglected by those who, for the time, ought to have been teachers. He saw them ignorant, hopeless, helpless, dying, and unfit to die. And the sight moved him to deep pity. That loving heart could not see such things and not feel. Now, what are our feelings when we see such a sight? This is the question that should arise in our minds. There are many such to be seen on every side. There are millions of idolaters and heathen on earth, millions of Muslims, millions of superstitious Roman Catholics. There are thousands of ignorant Protestants near our own doors. Do we feel tenderly concerned about their souls? Do we pity, do we deeply pity their spiritual destitution? Do we long to see that destitution relieved? These are serious inquiries and ought to be answered. It is easy to sneer at missions to the heathen and those who work for them, but the man who does not feel for the souls of all unconverted persons can surely not have the mind of Christ. Any amens? Amens. So the question for us is really, whereas the title of my sermon was, What Did Jesus See? The, the conclusion is, is, What Do We See? In other words, are we of like mind with Jesus? Well, I think if we were honest, oftentimes no. Too often we're like the, the, the priest walking down the road in the parable of the Good Samaritan, and we walk to the other side to avoid those that are unclean. In fact, I would argue that many in the Christian community construct their entire lives to avoid the unclean. It determines where they live, where they work, where they go to school, where they worship, all to a mind to avoid the unclean rather than reach them for Christ. It's a serious problem. It's a serious problem in America, and it's a serious problem in O'Fallon. It's a serious problem in this church. So what do we do? Well, let me make three suggestions before we close. The first one Jesus gives us right here, he says to pray. Now, this is a very interesting thing. Notice with me in Matthew 9, look at the text again. He says to his disciples in verse 37, The harvest truly is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Now, it's it's striking here that Jesus doesn't say, The harvest is plentiful, so get to work. Jesus doesn't say, The harvest is, is there's plentiful, so pray for the harvest. Right? You following me? But he does say, pray for workers. Now, that's like, well, cool. I'll pray for workers. I don't have to do it. <laughs> but let me, let, me, let me just share something with you. Jesus is, can be really crafty. Remember the text where Paul says to the Corinthians, I've taken you by craft? I've tricked you? Jesus can be tricky sometimes. Now, I want to challenge you to begin to obey this scripture and to begin to pray 
for God to send laborers into the harvest. Begin to pray it daily. Begin to pray it earnestly. And if you do that, something will happen. You know what I'm going to say. You know the punchline, don't you? Something will happen to you. Because there is no way that you can pray this prayer regularly, faithfully, earnestly, honestly, without your heart toward the loss changing. You can't do it. I remember praying for a lost person one time, and it was like, the Lord's like, well, I'm glad you're praying, but why don't you call him up and witness to him? I mean, I was praying, God would send somebody else. Now, in some cases, there are people you can't physically reach. And obviously, you know, you're not on the other side of the world at this moment. But you could be. Well, you could be. You don't know. You could be. We have people that go to Belize. We have people going to Haiti. I mean, you never know where God may call you if you are really praying this prayer. So he says, pray. Pray for workers. And there's no way we can pray God raise up workers if we're not willing to be one of those workers. Are you hearing me? Amen. So if I would have written this, I would have said, pray for the lost to get saved. But that's not what he said. He's saying the problem isn't the lost, the problem is the saved. <laughs> the problem is that we're not going, we're not being workers. When the harvest is plentiful. That's what he's saying. Now I understand that different times and seasons in the ministry and even in the culture and the church has been here 2,000 years, you know. But I can assure you that when you leave today, you will see somebody who's not saved. And when you go to work tomorrow, you'll see people that aren't saved. As you go throughout your, 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 your week, as you go to the ball field or you do different things, you'll see people that are not, people that are not saved. I mean, it's not like you've got to go looking for an unsaved person. You hearing me? In other words, the harvest really is plentiful. Oh my gosh, Jesus was right. What do you know? There's a lot of unsaved people out there. So first thing we need to do is we need to pray for workers. And if we do, this will affect our hearts if we really pray sincerely. Amen? Secondly, we need to pay attention. We need to pay attention. Go to, to, to um, John 4 for a moment, where Jesus uses this picture of a harvest again. In John 4, this is after Jesus... Or yeah, he already witnessed to the woman at the well, and then a bunch of people are going to come up from town because she witnessed to them, and a bunch of people get saved. But right in the middle of that, um, the disciples, of course, being so spiritual, were thinking about food. Right? Verse 31. So Jesus is ministering, verse 31. In the meantime, his disciples urged him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat of which you do not know. Therefore, the disciples said to one another, Oh, 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 has anyone brought him anything to eat? Wow. Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. 
Do you not say there are still four months and then comes the harvest? Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look at the fields, for they are already white for harvest. This is what I mean by pay attention. Lift up your eyes. So the image, the image is of somebody who's walking and they're looking, they're, they're looking down. Well, if you walked on those kinds of roads, you'd probably look down a lot because there's holes and there's mud and there's, you know, oh, unclean, I'm walking over here. Yeah. So you're walking on the road. Jesus says, don't look down, look up. In other words, pay attention to your surroundings. Pay attention to your surroundings. So when you go to work or when you go to the basketball game or baseball game or when you go to the ballet or the piano recital, don't look down, meaning don't look narrowly, but look broadly and look around. Pay attention and begin to see what's around you. And when you begin to pay attention, you begin to see that the harvest truly is plentiful. But you have to look up. That means we can't be thinking of our lives so narrowly. You hear me? So narrowly. I mean, you, you do realize that we can go weeks and months and some Christians even years and never even think of maybe sharing the gospel. Well, that's looking down. Jesus says, look up. You have opportunities all around you. All around you. Why? Because the harvest truly is plentiful. Now, if you pray, like Jesus said, you will become, you'll, if you truly pray, you, you'll, your heart will be affected. And then you will begin to, you will begin to lift up your eyes. You'll begin to see. And all of a sudden it will dawn on you when you're at work, oh, this guy who's been across me for the past 10 years isn't saved. Oh my gosh. I've never spoken Jesus to him all these years. And you begin to see. But in order to really see, we have to do one more thing. And that's in Luke chapter... Six. I wanted to say eight, but it's six. Luke six. We're going to close with this passage. Verse twenty-seven. <clears throat> Excuse me. But I say to you, who hear, love your enemies, and do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. And pray for those who spitefully use you. To him who strikes you on the one cheek, offer the other also. And from him who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who asks of you. And from him who takes away your goods, do not ask them back. And just as you want men to do to you, you also do to them likewise. Now, I don't know about you. When I got saved, one of the first things I thought was, man, why didn't somebody tell me this sooner? Did everybody ever have that? It's like, Man, why is something now? I, I, I think some people did try to tell me sooner, but you know, I was blind. Someone shared with you, right? Someone shared the gospel with you. Just as you want men to do to you, you should also do to them. 
But if you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. This is why you, you can go to a bar on a Friday night. There's more people in a bar than there are in a church on Sunday morning. Because sinners love sinners. So loving your own, Jesus, loving your own, loving people like you isn't a big deal because even sinners do that. Verse 33, and if you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. You know, loving your fellow Christian is, is, a, is a virtue. Loving your family is a virtue. But you understand that even sinners love their family. Even unsaved parents often love their kids. So things that we extol, we need to remember, oh, wait a minute. What is, what is special about what we're extolling if even sinners do it? That's what Jesus is really getting at. He's saying what he's calling us to is something supernatural. It's beyond what the natural man will do. Because you know what? The natural man doesn't love his enemy. Right? The natural man doesn't turn his cheek. But loving people like you, well, that's not that hard. Verse 34, and if you lend to those from whom you hope to receive back, what credit is that to you? For even sinners lend to sinners to receive as much back. So, so he's three times, he says, even sinners, even sinners. So you're doing good things, but you know, they're just normal. But love your enemies. Ha, there you go. Do good and lend, hoping for nothing in return, and your reward will be great in heaven. And you will be sons of the Most High, for He, God, is kind to the unthankful and the evil. Therefore be merciful, just as your Father also is merciful. Judge not, you shall not be judged. Condemn not, you shall not be condemned. Forgiven, you will be forgiven. Given, it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over, uh, will be put into your bosom. For with the same measure that you use, it will be measured back to you. And he spoke a parable to them. Can the blind lead the blind? Here we are. Here we are. Coming full circle. About seeing, right? About seeing. Can the blind lead the blind? Well, obviously no. Will they not both fall into the ditch? A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone who is perfectly trained will be like his teacher. Well, who's your teacher? Who's your teacher? Jesus, Jesus is your teacher, right? Jesus is your teacher. So when you're fully trained, you'll be like Jesus. That's what he's saying. I'm your master. You're my disciple. The goal is to be like me. Verse 41. And why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but you do not perceive the plank in your own eye? Oh. Hmm. Or how can you say to your brother, brother, let me remove the speck that's in your eye? Because I love you so much. And I'm just so concerned about you that I'm sharing my concern with everybody in church. Because we all love you so much. How are you going to help your brother when you yourself do not see the plank that is in your own eye? Hypocrite. First remove the plank from your own eye. And then you will see clearly to remove the speck that is in your brother's eye. Well, there is some radical, novel advice. How about dealing with yourself first before you start judging other people? Pretty radical, huh? Now, one of the weirdest things that we see 
and I'm guilty of it too, is for Christians to be judgmental. You know why? Because the whole gospel is premised on us acknowledging that we have sinned. Acknowledging our unworthiness. If you don't believe you are unworthy to have a relationship with God, meaning in your natural state, apart from Christ, then you're not saved. You can't be saved and think you're worthy. It just doesn't work that way. Because Jesus said, I came to call sinners. That means you acknowledge you're a sinner. Right? I came to call the sick. That means when he called you, you were really sick. Okay? And the gospel is the gospel of grace. Grace means unmerited favor. Undeserved favor. It means you have done nothing. Not something. Not a little bit. Not a teeny bit. You have done nothing to merit God's love. Not a thing. If you know Christ, you know Christ because God has opened your blind eyes and sent his spirit into your heart and regenerated you and you were born again and now you see the kingdom of God. And it's not because of anything you have done or anything you would do. You and I can do absolutely nothing to be saved. Now some people hear that, oh, this guy's an antinomian. He's lawless. No. When you come to the kingdom, God has uh, cha- cleans us up, man. But he does it from the inside. He changes your heart. He changes your mind. He changes how you see. Okay? He gives you new passions. This, when, when someone is truly regenerated, their heart really is changed. They begin to love the word. They love the law. They begin to love people. They love all kinds of things that previously they hated. Because God's changing them on the inside. It's a transformation. It's not you change your opinion. You change your religion. God gives you a new heart. He takes that stony heart out and gives you, Scripture says, a heart of flesh, meaning a warm, soft heart. You can clap for Jesus. And that, my friend, is a gift. A gift. You do not earn it. You do not earn it. It's all of grace. So here we are. We all say, we're saved by grace. We're sinners by nature. We deserve nothing from God. And then we look at other people and say, ew, yuck. Sinners. What is that? What is that? Well, I think Jesus said it's hypocrisy. That's what that is. Maybe we're not seeing the harvest properly because we have a big log in our eye. And it's blurring our vision. And we need, to, we need to have a little eye surgery. We need to pull that thing. Oh, that sounds so painful, doesn't it? Can you imagine? With a big stick in your eyeball? Well, that's what he's saying. But the only way you're going to see is to yank that thing out. And sometimes we've got to call it, get our brother and sister and say, Hey, will you yank that out for me? I can't do it. I've got to get that stuff out of my eye. Because I can't see. So Jesus says, you got to get the plank out of your eye. Because it's blurring your vision. You're not seeing properly. In other words, the place to begin, the place to really begin for evangelism, the place to really begin for outreach is right here in your heart. It's in the closet with God. We close the door. You say, Jesus, by the way, he is God. You need to do some surgery on my heart.
Because the truth is, I don't really care. Do you have enough courage to admit that to God? I'm not seeing things the way you see them, because when I see the multitude, I, I, I just don't feel it. And I'm just being honest. So if I got planks, Lord, you've you got to just start yanking those planks out. And that's why we have the old adage, revival begins at home. Revival begins at home. And when Jesus says pray, and if we really do, it will it'll deal with our heart. When he says lift up your eyes, if we really do, he'll deal with our heart. If, we, if we're willing to deal with the plank in our, in our eye, he'll deal with our heart. And then, out of the abundance of the heart flows the issues of life. Everything. We need to see like Jesus sees, amen? Which means we need the heart of Jesus. Let's stand and pray. Lord, you are so good. You are so kind. You are so patient with us. But Lord, I pray that we would, and I include myself, we would have new eyes to see. Lord, we need to see the way you do. Not the way you did, the way you do. Present tense, right now. The way you do. The way you see our co-workers, the way you see our neighbors, the way you see people in our neighborhoods. Oh Lord, help us to see through your eyes of compassion, the eyes of the great shepherd who sees the lost as weary sheep. Lord, I, I pray that you would raise up workers. You tell us to pray that. We're praying it now. That you would send workers. But Lord, I know I can't pray that honestly before you if I'm not willing to be one of them. And so, Lord, we're willing. I'm willing. Lord, I pray that as we lift up our eyes and look around, that we would see the opportunities you're giving us on a regular basis. And I pray that we would redeem the opportunities that you give us. And lastly, Lord, I just pray that you'd forgive us for any self-righteousness we might have. That we would think we're better. That we're, we're, we're saved because we're better. We're Christians because we're better. Now, maybe we're better because we're saved, but it's not the other way around. And if we're better, it's because of your grace. Jesus, I thank you lastly for just revealing the heart of the Father who is merciful, your Father who is merciful. and kind even to the unthankful and the evil. May we be like our Father in heaven.
We ask it in your name. Amen.